Hello, everyone, and welcome to this uh, Archives of Disease and Childhood Feet Neonatal Edition podcast. Um, it's my great pleasure to interview one of the authors from the Editor's Choice from this month's print edition of the journal, uh, entitled uh, Using a Composite Morbidity Score Cultural Survey to Explore Characteristics of High Proficiency Neonatal Intensive Care Units. And I'll let the author introduce himself now. Yeah, hi, my name's Joe Kempf. I am a neonatologist and I'm the medical director of uh, continuous quality improvement and clinical research for the Providence St. Joseph Health System in Oregon, uh, United States. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Kempf. Um, this is, I find this study quite interesting in that it almost strikes at the intangible qualities of quality improvement. Uh, and that's, I guess, something that, that I have never really read before. Um, could you just give us a little bit of the, of the background um, of why you felt this, was, this study was particularly important to, to, to carry out? Absolutely. Um, I've done uh, collaborative quality improvement going back to the 1990s with a fair number of uh, neonatal intensive care units in the United States and Canada through the Vermont-Oxford network. And uh, one of the things that we've observed when 10 or 12 of the NICUs have worked together for you know, 20 plus years, and despite the fact that you know we go to the same conferences and we we look at the same data and we do site visits and we really try to standardize our practices and do best practices in evidence-based medicine. We still, even within our collaborative group that works together very closely, we still have these unexplained differences in the major morbidities of premature infants. So this project looked at basically babies less than 32 weeks of age and, you know, the big hitters, chronic lung disease, retinopathy, interventricular hemorrhage, sepsis, necrotizing enterocolitis, periventricular leukomalacia, poor growth, uh, whatnot. And we said, why do we have in our group some NICUs that consistently outperform others uh, with appropriate risk adjustment? So, uh, we, you know, sometimes the answers are simple. Uh, you know, some places use CPAP better. Some people used more breast milk, and some people uh, were better at uh, central line checklists and things like that. But even after looking at things like that, we still saw persistent differences. So we said, look, let's let's look at our group, and we published one paper looking at our group just uh, of eight NICUs and showed these differences in outcomes despite close collaboration. So we expanded it to 39 NICUs in Canada and the United States. And we basically said, send us your outcomes data, you know, all de-identified, uh, we'll risk adjust appropriately, you know, gestational age and weight and inborn, outborn and C-section and anomalies and whatnot. And then we're gonna look at uh, this benefit metric, this uh, risk adjusted composite, um, score, uh, meaning the entire goal uh, when you admit preterm babies is to discharge them alive with no diagnoses, with none of the eight major diagnoses. And again, some NICUs, even after risk adjustment, are very skillful at doing that. So anyway, uh, to make a long story short, we calculated this composite metric score for 39 NICUs, a very large variety of university NICUs, children's hospitals, Canada, the United States, some of them small, some of them large. And we calculated their scores and didn't let them know what the scores were until we had them do a cultural environment survey. And the survey was uh, rather lengthy and it, and it looked at a lot of cultural, environmental, morale, teaching, kind of structural elements of NICUs uh, to see, yeah. will that tease out these differences? So that, that was kind of the hypothesis that maybe it's, there's additional factors other than the you know, type of surfactant you use or the type of ventilator you use. Maybe there's some cultural, environmental, human factors. 
Sure. And that, uh, just for the people who are listening, that, that original paper was published in JAMA of PEDS in 2015. Is that, correct. that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So we'll, we'll put a link in the, um, in our little blurb to the paper so that people can, can, can have a look back at that paper so they have some context. And your um, listeners can, um, we have a website where they can calculate their own benefit metric or composite metric score. It's, and it's in the paper listed. It's a free website. You can calculate your own composite morbidity score again. Uh, how good are you, theoretically, at discharging premature infants with no or very few diagnoses? Okay, wonderful. And that's in the JAMA PEDS paper or the BNJ? Yeah, it's in the JAMA. It's in both papers. Yeah, it's it's a website that yeah, it's free and it's very easy to use. Fantastic. So with these thirty nine um, NICUs, um, and you 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 did your composite score, then you did your cultural survey. Could you just outline uh, just a little bit of the results? What you found, sort of the size of the population, and uh, how you felt that those differences um, occurred. Yeah, sure. We kind of lumped the 103-question survey into four uh, categories. Uh, one of them was physical structure of the NICU, and we showed that the high-performing NICUs, that is, those NICUs, there was 14 NICUs of the 39 that clearly outperformed uh, the other 25, uh, you know, statistically significant, risk-adjusted, and whatnot. And there were some physical structure differences. Those 14 NICUs tended to be single-family room NICUs, they actually had easier parking at their hospital site, and they had fewer windows. So there was just a, just a couple of structural things. So that was interesting. Then we looked at staffing models, and uh, our survey strongly suggested that the higher-performing NICUs uh, had their neonatologists rounded on fewer patients per day, and their nurses had favorable staffing ratios. That is, they were taking care of two and three infants rather than three and four infants. There was less turnover um, we also noted in the staffing models that nurse practitioners uh, were a big presence on high-performing NICUs, and also a no primary nursing model was, seemed to be characteristic of high-performing NICUs. Um, and then the other one that wasn't too surprising, the, the places that did not have pediatric or family medicine trainees uh, tended to perform at a higher level. So those were the staffing and physical structure. Uh, and then the CQI features weren't terribly surprising. We asked a lot of questions about different CQI features. And uh, basically, most NICUs have, you know, brain teams and prevent chronic lung disease teams and prevent NEC teams. So that, that didn't distinguish it. But what did distinguish it was that the high-performing NICUs had neonatologists, nurses, nurse practitioners who actually felt that their job was not just to take care of patients, but their, their job was to problem solve, that they were given time. To, to do quality improvement. And they understood what, the, what a PDSA cycle was. And uh, they were kind of more willing to adopt CQI changes. They had formal teaching conferences. They had simulation teams, mock codes. So that, that I think, was a, a nice um, supportive data to say that, you know, a, a culture of CQI is associated with better outcomes. And then, and then finally, the the cultural and cognitive features, kind of, kind of mushy, kind of some social sciences, not the typical thing that neonatologists and obstetricians are completely comfortable with. But we, we showed, and I think fairly strongly, actually, because, of course, I have the data very in a more granular fashion, but it was very clear that the 14 of the 39 NICUs that were high performers, uh, you know, fewer morbidities after risk adjustment, they, they just had better morale. They had all these markers of teamwork 
and happiness and morale. And, you know, again, these work expectations were not just to take care of your patients and write a note, but, you know, how, how can I do my job better? How can I help my mates do their job better? Um, so, and they, you know, they had resource libraries and parent rooms. Um, so there were some clear markers and it's, it's in the paper of, of cultural, social things that are almost never measured, as you know, in, um, in uh, quality improvement articles. So, um, you know, we, we it, it, you know, is a correlation, is a causation, you know, we're, we're not going to, you know, make that claim, you know, in other words, do are people happy because they work in a functional unit or is it happy people that make a unit functional? <laughs> so people have to do more research to tease that out. But we, you know, again, we felt that culture uh, matters, uh, morale, teamwork, happiness, respect, th- those things matter. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that tends to be, it's sort of, I think it sort of bubbles under the surface in, in, in most people's minds, but I don't, I, I've never seen it actually studied to try and quantify those qualitative factors. Do you think there's anything overarching, so a grand unifying theory, anything that really ties all those things together? Because there's some interesting finding in in there. I mean, certainly having worked in the UK and now working in Australia, parking is definitely something that really affects people's morale and people talk about all the time, (laughs) but also more light, less light, more windows, less windows. Um, That's that's an interesting finding. And, And some of the specific nursing practices, I think, are quite common as well. I presume the higher nurse to patient ratios perform better as we as we have known from previous data. But do you think there's anything that ties all that together as sort of um sort of a, a, like I say a grand unifying theory? Well, probably not. Is there one thing that makes a family happy? If there's, you know, a husband and wife and three kids and you know what may, is there one thing that makes them happy or one thing that makes them functional? You know, and it would be hard to say that other than love. Right. And you're probably you might be familiar with uh, uh, Dr. Um, Don Abedian. He's an American physician that kind of founded CQI. He was doing CQI before it was an acronym back in the 50s and 60s. He kind of was one of the first people to do standardization and process improvement. And he died a couple years ago. And there was a nice uh, obituary about him. Uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and I, I believe we actually uh, quote uh, quote paper. But anyway, on, on his deathbed. On his deathbed, this this master of analytics, this master of structure and process, and um, Deming diagrams and Lean and Six Sigma and IHI methodology. On his deathbed, he said, "When it comes down to it, quality improvement is all about love." And you know, I think that, that's a, that's a powerful message. I mean, in other words, when people are comfortable, when they're on a team, they feel motivated. They do the little extra things that aren't quantitated. They're they're kinder to families. Maybe they do a little more reading. Maybe they show up at a meeting on their day off. I mean, you know, there's just all these things that the nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, family representatives, they'll do these things when they feel like they're part of a team and they're valued. And, and I think that's what Dr. Donabedian was getting at. Um, it's not the soap you use or the ventilator or the number of square feet. It's It's the the love and teamwork that you feel and i i think that our our hype we've worked with some of these high performing NICUs uh, Jonathan uh, in Canada and the United States and we've done site visits and they are you know they are happy families they are uh, they are cultures of excellence and you can feel it when you're there they're they're you know you you can feel dysfunction when you're in a dysfunctional unit and you can feel love when you're in a 
in a good unit. And, and those units that really operate with that neat balance of, uh, of reason and rigor and team and love, they, they just find a way to get CQI done. And unfortunately, just as you pointed out, it's, it's not documented well, right? It's not rigorously documented well, which is why, you know, some people don't, don't like these types of articles. They think it's too mushy. It's too uh, subjective. But, but I think we all know anybody that works in any sort of hospital unit or clinic knows that, uh, that spirit and esprit de corps and respect and enthusiasm and those things mean a lot. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. I think that they are they are they're very important, and it's very important to be valued within the the place that that you work to, and that helps people's performance. Um, I guess coming to just to my last uh, question is that people, I, I sort of firmly believe that most people in in neonatology want to improve. They want to do better, even. The, the units that are in inverted commas aren't performing well. I imagine there's a desire there to want to do better. Um, do you think you can teach any of this stuff or can you learn this, the tangible things that perhaps, you, you can learn how to it better, you can learn how to use a checklist, but can you learn the stuff that, that holds that all together? That's a good question, Jonathan. I think that you can, and it really starts with leadership. It starts with the nursing and the physician leadership. You know, it's, you, you can't have dysfunctional people at the top and expect everybody, you know, with them to say, oh, oh I'm, I'm going to be a, a nice, loving teamwork person, even though my, my bosses aren't. So I, it starts at the top. It starts with leadership saying, we are a family. We are in this together. Everyone, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, housekeepers, the cooks, the maintenance people, we're in this together to improve the health of women, infants, and children. So I think that is teachable. And you can't just, you know, watch a PowerPoint on it. I think when, you know, like site visits or when people see it, it's just like if you go to a happy family, that was our, our you know, our, our first sentence in the article, Tolstoy's classic first line of Anna Karenina, all happy families are the same. You know, when people immerse themselves in these units and they see it then it can be done and so so to answer your question i think it is it's not that it's teachable as much as it's learnable <laughs> you know what i'm saying in other words it's something that a person can just absorb a lot, a lot of it's non-verbal it's just just expressions and actions and you know all the kind of little things do nurses call doctors by their first name or do they have to formally address them? Is there just a weird sense of hierarchy or is there a sense of a network? I think that's a beautiful thing actually that goes back to Buddhism and Tao and Hinduism and ancient Greek philosophers. And that is, you know, think network. Don't think pyramids and hierarchies, but think, think networks and everybody's noted to each other. Everybody's kind of an energy field that interacts with other energy fields. And you know, I think that enhances uh, our dependence on each other. So, so to answer your question, it's learnable because you can see, because there are places, Jonathan, that do it. And that, that's what's interesting. They, they do it. They have consistently, in other words, critics will say, oh, that's all mushy. But then my reply to them is, but you know what? Their chronic lung disease rate, their neck rate, their uh, IVH rate, their RLP rate is lower than yours. So they are doing something better than you. And it's probably not what you think many times. Does that make sense? In other words, the proof's in the pudding. Absolutely. And I think that's a good place to leave our, our discussion there. So thank you, uh, Dr. Ken, for that really fascinating discussion. And as always, uh, people can interact with this uh, conversation via the 
Apple uh, podcast browser or SoundCloud. Um, you can communicate with us uh, via their Facebook page, uh, the BMJ Child Health Facebook page, um, and via the, uh, the, the Twitter handle for the journal at ADC underscore FN and through my Twitter handle at Jonathan underscore Davis three.